You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, it's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26. And really the book of Hebrews keeps telling us every single week that we, something we desperately need to hear that we must keep looking to Jesus. Christianity doesn't pretend that life is a breeze. We struggle against sin. We, we endure temptations. We fight against our sinful desires. We fight against the satanic forces. We suffer. We have sicknesses. We have disease. We, we mourn. We lament. Christians get persecuted, and the all-purpose reminder in all of these things is that we must look to Jesus, that, that he is who we need, and he is what we need, that when, when the clouds will not part in our lives, we have Jesus. When, the, the, when the, all of our temptations and struggles get stronger, that Jesus is stronger still. And today's passage calls us to remember Christ and to not forget the cost of discipleship with Christ. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 26, Hebrews 10, 26. And the Holy Spirit tells us, for if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. Help us with your great mercy and your kindness through the spirit of Christ. Would you move and stir among us now so that we would endure. Help us, King Jesus. Meet us now. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm I'm not a handy guy. And that's not, that's even being kind. Uh, But I'm learning. 
and I've changed out a couple of lights in our house, and not light bulbs, but the actual light fixture. I've, I have changed broken light fixtures, and I changed one out in our pantry last weekend. I had just gotten back from working out, and so I was sweaty and, you know, in gross clothes. I thought, hey, I'll go ahead and just knock this out real fast, and this one in the pantry had been broken for over a year. It needed the whole re- replacement, and, and I thought I turned off the right breaker. So you know where all of this is going. I can tell you that after you get electrocuted, you are a lot more mindful of what you are doing when you deal with electricity. That event changed my life. It changed my family's life. The, my scream still echoes in our house. It changed my children's life, and it's changing your life now too. Because that's what power does. Power changes you. And the power of the gospel changes us. Christianity is about the grace of God given to us in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus for us and how his power changes our eternity, how his power changes us now. We know that if if you've heard of Christianity, you've heard the gospel, you hear about eternal life and, and the eternity to come, but we often forget about is how the power of grace changes us in our lives right now. That God's power has taken effect in our lives right now. Our lives are under the reign of King Jesus and we've given up our pathetic own dictatorships and we've surrendered to the king. And when we feel the power of the gospel in our lives, for some people it's like, oh, they were you know, addicted to drugs and they, Christ saves them and then they're like, I, I never go back to it, never tempt it again. But for a lot of us, there are, that doesn't happen. We still struggle with some of the same things. And sometimes we get frustrated that the change isn't like a light switch coming on. We get frustrated and worried that there's not enough change in our lives. And this can be a a holy angst, but there should also be an understanding that we are in process, that we are growing, we are changing, we are being transformed. King Jesus, after he saved you, he did not expect you to become perfect right away. Rather, He knows that we've been freed from sin, but we are learning to live freed from sin. We've been declared righteous, not guilty, and now we are learning to live that righteous life. It's true that we won't be sinless until we depart from these bodies, see the Lord, and then we are equipped with our resurrection bodies. But it is also true that we are wanting to sin less, We are growing to hate our sin. That's really where this passage begins. Do you hate your sin? And when I ask you that, don't hear me asking you, do you sin? We all sin. The question is, do you hate when you sin? Is there a point in your life when you're grieved by it? Like the Apostle Paul himself, our brother, at the end of Romans 7, he says, I do not understand what I am doing. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. So even the apostle Paul himself feels this in his soul. You feel the battle against sin here. I don't want to do these sins. I want to honor Christ. I do what I hate and I'm not doing what I love. This should be our battle too. This is why Hebrews warns us right here. 
to not go on with deliberate sin. Look at verse 26, Hebrews 10, 26. The writer says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but a fearful expectation, expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Now we really got to slow down and read this verse rightly because this is a heavy verse and you can get really discouraged and depressed if you misread this verse. So do not misread it. Because too many people could read this verse, hear me read this verse as, if you keep sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. You aren't a Christian. But listen, is that what the Bible says? What does the Bible say right here? Verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately, Deliberately. This is the hinge word in this passage right now. It's intentional. It's without a care in the world. Brothers and sisters, there is a big difference. I think an eternal difference between sinning in ignorance and being oblivious to it, even in battling against temptation and battling against sin and then sinning and then deliberate sin. Here, this is deliberate. You know the repercussions. You know how it would ruin lives around you. You know the effects. You know the problems it'll cause, and you don't care. Just look at what he says afterwards. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. So this person, it goes on sinning deliberately after knows the truth. So they know the truths of the gospel. You know Jesus frees you from your sin, that he died in your place, and he rose again from the dead. You know the truths of the gospel. You know he's crushed sin and and the power of Satan. And you know that it would be a dishonor to Christ to to do this and that it would grieve the Holy Spirit to do this. And you do that sin anyways. That's not even what he's talking about yet. Because what I just described is our everyday life. That you know lying's wrong, that it would dishonor Christ, that Christ has freed you from lying, but yet we lie. Or we don't tell the whole truth. You know it would be a sin to look at that guy or to look at that girl in that way. And you know it would be dishonored, Christ, but yet you, you did it. Everything I've described up to this point is a Christian still gets to this point. But eventually, a Christian gets convicted. And their heart is grieved. And they confess and they repent and they resume with following and honoring Christ and walking with him and and walking with Jesus' people. So what's the difference? It's the other word we must notice. Look at verse 26 again. If we go on sinning deliberately. Go on. Deliberately. These two together really craft what he is saying. And this keeps happening, this going on deliberately again and again and again. This unswerving of sin. There's no remorse. There's no confession. There is only a, I don't care what the Bible says. I know what it says. I know the Bible says it's sin. I don't think it's sin. I don't submit to the Bible's categories See, this, is, this person is going on deliberately. See, there's a point when people don't even call sin, sin anymore. That's, it's their life. It's my life. It's what I want to do. If you, if you haven't redefined your sins, 
you're still submitting to the ecosystem of the Bible and you still have a savior. But for people who go on sinning deliberately with no breaks, no turning, even if they know and have received the truth, they've, they've prayed a prayer, they got dunked in baptism. Hebrews says, this person is not a Christian. Now that may make us uncomfortable and it's supposed to. Because we'd like to soften the wall up of this verse and say something like, well, you're, you're probably aren't a Christian. But Hebrews doesn't have a probably. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is probably no longer a remain sacrifice of sins. But maybe a fearful, see, we like to add asterisks and maybes and, and to soften the intensity of this verse. But there is no softness. There is no diluting of the intensity. Hebrews says this person, there is, they have no sacrifice for sins, but what remains for them is a terrifying judgment because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, into his wrath. And God's wrath is real. Just as real as the cross. Because that's what the cross is for. We either get one or the other. We either get the sacrifice for our sins in Christ on the cross, or we get the wrath of God. This is one mega reason why the cross of Christ is so spectacular. We are saved, yes, what? From the wrath of God. We have our sins forgiven, why? From the judgment and justice of God. We are united with God, why? Because we're now we're no longer the enemy of God and under the wrath of God. As he says in verse 28, anyone who set aside the law of Moses, they die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It was provable that they transgressed the law and they got no mercy from God. 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? Deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God. See how much worse, how much worse. He's telling these Hebrew Christians who know the wrath of God. They know the Old Testament. They know how God executes his justice and his wrath. And they know how God executes his mercy. And here they want to turn from the mercy of God. So what does it look like to go on to sinning deliberately? He describes it in verse 29 in three ways. Look at how he describes it. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, here's number one, who has trampled underfoot the son of God. This is to regard him, to trample underfoot, just a phrase we don't use it often, but it means to regard him as nothing. It really made me think about when, you know, we have some family in New Orleans and we, we go to that city and you, you walk through the city to enjoy all that New Orleans has to offer. But there are some parts of the city that are pretty grimy, just a lot of trash, but everybody just walks over it. You just keep walking like, oh, just trash, whatever. You just go. You, I don't care that I stepped on, I wadded up gum wrapper. You just go. To trample underfoot is to treat Christ as some wadded up garbage. Don't care that you step on it. Inconsequential. And then to next, to profane the blood of the covenant. This just means to treat Jesus' blood as ordinary. Rome crucified thousands of people. So what Jesus was crucified? It means nothing to me. And this next one, to go on sinning deliberately, outrage the spirit of grace. 
The word outrage has a domino effect, meaning the, the first meaning of this word in Greek is to, is to insult, to insult the spirit of grace. And then because of our insulting the spirit of grace by, by how we are living, not living in freedom, not living in the fruits of the spirit, we insult the spirit of grace and then the spirit is outraged. So we trample underfoot the son of God. We profane the blood of the covenant. We outrage and insult the spirit of grace. The entire Trinity is disregarded and insulted by those who go on sinning deliberately. But Christians don't live this way. Yes, we sin. And yes, we have a savior. Do you treat Jesus like trash? Trample on him, ignore him, view him as nothing. No, Christians, we see him as the son of God, our Lord and our savior. We don't trample on him, we, we worship him. Do you see his blood as ordinary? Or do you see it as the payment for your sins? That you're grateful for his blood so much that you're so grateful and overwhelmed by the blood of Christ that you sing about blood. Where else in your life do you sing about blood? But yet we sing about the blood of Christ. And far from wanting to insult the spirit of grace, we want to outrage the spirit of grace, to, to grieve the spirit of grace, you want to be filled with the spirit. And you want to walk in the spirit. And you want to have, you want to have a harvest of the fruits of the spirit in your life. This is how a Christian lives. This is how a Christian yearns. This is what a Christian desires. And since Jesus died to free us and to forgive us from our sins, did he do that so we could go on sinning deliberately? No. To give us new life. Life with him, not in opposition to him. Christians want to live with Christ, not in opposition to Christ. Do you? Do you want to live with Christ? Or are you living in opposition to Christ? So maybe, maybe there are pockets of your life where you are sinning deliberately. And God is calling you not to go on with that. Maybe how you treat your spouse, what you look at on the internet, how you treat your children, your language, your attitude at work, your lust, your, your habits, your money, are they in opposition to God? Are they in line with God? Are there areas in your life where you are sinning deliberately and God's calling you, don't go on with that? See, these warning passages here, because I know there are, there are un unbelievers, there are people who, you are not a Christian, and I'm, we're thrilled that you're here. This is a warning for you that there's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can escape the wrath of God if you will run to Christ. Go to the sacrifice of sins. Go to Jesus. He, he will welcome you. And for believers, these kind of warning passages to not go on sinning deliberately, they are meant to zap us and to wake us up when we've been dozing off at the wheel of our lives and to notice sins that we haven't been noticing and that we must fight because the Christian life is not described as lounging by a pool. Christian life is described by the Apostle Paul as a runner, as a soldier, someone who's disciplined, who is straining forward and has, that we should not forget the cost of following Christ. Look at verse 32. 
But recall the former days when you were enlightened, when you first became a believer, when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, like Olympic athletes. You see these folks every four years, because Winter Olympics, who cares? But the summer ones. Every four, these people, they sacrifice so much time and money and they sacrifice normal living. They can't live like everyone else and not compete at that level. They have a specific goal and they stay the course. They train like crazy because they know the cost of dedication. And here Hebrews is reminding his original hearers and us, don't forget the cost of discipleship. Don't forget the cost of following Christ because following Jesus is not cheap. That's why verse 32 says, you remember the hard struggle and the sufferings you endured that they had at the beginning. And we need to pause right here and get familiar with our surroundings because when we're reading this, it is like we are being teleported back to the first century and we are in the room with these Hebrew Christians and we are listening to what they're listening to. We are gathered with them. And this verse, for most of us, it doesn't ring experientially true. Because in some of us, when we first became Christians, especially if, if you became a Christian as a child, there were not immediate sufferings and hardships. If you became a Christian later in life, as an adult, you may have lost some friendships. You may have thought, your family may have thought you were weird. I can tell you how many times, when I've, especially college students and people in their 20s and 30s when they become Christians and no one else in their family is and they think we're some kind of cult. But to be a Christian in the first century, to be a Jewish Christian in the first century, this was to turn your back on the temple, which is something everyone in your family has done for generations, for thousands of years. And then you're turning your back on the temple, you're turning your back on the high priest, and then now you're saying, I am going to worship a convicted criminal. Someone who was killed in the most despicable way possible. And then I believe he rose again from the dead. This was unheard of and would have welcomed a variety of insults and persecutions. That's why, you know, in Romans 1, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. We read that and we think, of course, well, why would we be ashamed? In the first century, people were ashamed. Because back then to associate with crucifixion was disgusting. This is why all four gospel accounts, only you add them all up, you only get a paragraph about crucifixion. Because it was vile. There are no details. No one talked about it. Romans weren't even supposed to have that word on their lips. And so you can see why people would be ashamed to say, I worship and I publicly display my dedication and my allegiance to a wrongly convicted criminal. Because just imagine, just make it real in your life. Imagine if you had a family member or a sibling or a child who was on death row for crimes so heinous we couldn't even talk about here. And if their name was mentioned it's, everyone would know because they were on national media. It was always on the news. And that was your family member, your sibling, your child. You would feel so ashamed to mention them and even say you know them. And yet here's the Christians saying, we boast in the cross. 
that we love the cross, that we identify with the cross. We preach the word of the cross. And this is why these Jewish Christians were beginning to feel the heat because there was a lot of pressure and a lot of persecution, a lot of insults coming their way. This is why they're tempted to go back into Judaism. And this is why many of us, we are tempted just to dial back and to camouflage our Christianity with the culture. But this is why verse 33 screams to us, Sometimes you are being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Other translations say just a little bit easier for us. You were taunted. You were insulted. Verbal persecution is still persecution, the Bible says. Publicly made fun of, taunted and assaulted and, and, and frozen out of business and public dealings. Seen as a freak. Why, why would you worship some convicted criminal? Why, why are you eating his flesh and drinking his blood? And he says, maybe if it didn't happen to you, what? Sometimes being partners with us so treated. You knew people it happened to. And now you're wondering, will this happen to me? Makes me think about Christians in Iraq and Syria who are now on the run from ISIS. I just read the story about a young man in the book. They say we are infidels who was abandoned by everyone he knew. I mean, imagine being abandoned by everyone in your family. He was a Shiite Muslim, became a Christian, homeless, familyless. And he's living with some Iraqi Christians he just met, sleeping on a pallet in a spare bedroom, learning how to follow Jesus by another Egyptian pastor that lives in this house, with, along with the other 15 other people that live in this two-bedroom house. And they're filled with joy. The, the ease of Christianity in America is astounding. It is astounding how easy we have it. So astounding that I think we've really stunted ourselves from living radically and living counterculturally and living uncamouflaged for the name of Christ. Because look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, the confiscation of your possessions. So here's why this is important, that Christians, when they were in prison, it'd be costly to visit them. And other Christians had to visit other Christians in jail because the prisons didn't have a meal program. Roman prisons, they don't care if you die there. Great, we can free up a cell. If people didn't bring you food, you'd die. So these Hebrew Christians, at great cost to themselves, are bringing their fellow Christians food while they're in jail, and now they're being identified. Oh, they must be Christians too. They're the only ones coming to care for these Hebrew Christians. They're Christians too. They're outing themselves, opening themselves up to imprisonment, to hostility, to persecution. And this next one, verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property the confiscation of your possessions. They were getting robbed because they are Christians. The government stepping in because, oh, you haven't been worshiping Caesar? We're gonna go ahead and take some of your cattle then. Oh, you haven't been paying the, the Caesar tax at the temple? Okay, we're gonna go ahead and take all that pottery that you've been selling at the market. We're gonna take that and we're gonna sell it and we're gonna get money. The cost of following Christ for them. It's been cheap in the USA, but it won't be for much longer. As we see in the Gospels, 
as they were traveling on the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, let me, first let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. But, but first, let me go and say goodbye to those in my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? What has it cost you in your life? It begins, you can see in this passage, with a public, recognizable Christian life. You see how all of these sufferings were public. The taunts, the verbal assault, the confiscation, the prison time. It's clear, these people are Christians. And their persecution was public. So they could identify, these are the people that are Christians. How public is your Christian life? I don't mean on Facebook and social media that you shared that meme, so now Jesus is going to bless you. Enough of that garbage. (laughs) But in your actual life, how public is your Christianity, your allegiance to Christ? Your coworkers, they know. Your family, your friends, they know that you have an allegiance and adoration for a crucified and risen Middle Eastern man. It's clear to them that you think this Jesus isn't just some nice moral example, but you think he is God overall and the only way to salvation and that your life and your all is with him. I was reading in this book about these Middle Eastern Christians and there was a group of churches that was dying. They were shrinking in numbers because they decided well, we're just going to evangelize people in our families and in our people group. We're not going to evangelize Muslims because that would be too costly. And this other movement of churches that was growing and expanding, God blessing it. And they're about to baptize some Muslim men and women who had just come to faith in Christ, former Muslims. And this other network of churches said, we've got to stop doing that. Why are you doing that? We're going to get in a lot of trouble. And they welcomed the trouble. I think a lot of times we can be like the network of Middle Eastern churches who's dialed back and has shrunk back and not engaging in the cost of discipleship. So in your actions, can people tell this person loves Jesus and knows Jesus and is aligned with Christ in your loves and in your lifestyle and your passions? Do your coworkers, family, and friends, they know? And in a sense, they almost feel kind of kind of disconnected from this person in some ways? Or is the only difference between them and you is that maybe they're having brunch right now or sleeping in or they're at a kid's sport and you're here? There's the only difference that maybe you get up early and maybe read your Bible a couple times and they get up and read the paper. Beloved, salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. As our Lord Jesus says himself, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or a daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take up his cross, whoever doesn't, whoever doesn't pick up his own death row sentence, whoever doesn't pick up his own being seen as disgusting by the world and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. And the costliness of it is, it is not bothersome to Christians. Because we know our eternity is just around the corner. That's why he says in verse 34, at the end of, at the end of 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering. Those are two amazing words. Not only did they accept the confiscation and plundering of their stuff, but they joyfully accepted it. Why? Why weren't they riding their congressmen? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. They did not forget eternity. And brothers and sisters, don't forget eternity. They knew they had a better and enduring and an abiding possession, that Jesus is better. He's better than our possessions. That's why Paul could live so radically and why Paul, it's amazing, he would sing in prison. He's singing hymns in prison in the dark, sitting in fecal matter. Because he knows Jesus is better. That's why Iraqi Christians can have the Lord's Supper in the midst of a broken down, no electricity, cobbled together, rubbled church. Because Jesus is better. That's why this one woman, and they say we are infidels, she was captured by the Taliban right before the 9-11 attacks. And she was being held in prison in a shipping container. And then when the 9-11 attacks happened and then the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, they just, the, the Al-Qaeda soldiers, they just left the shipping container, left the prisoners there and bailed, took off running. They finally found them, let them out of their shipping container prison. She went back to the States, did a few things and headed right to Iraq. Went right back doing humanitarian aid and evangelism work. Why do Christians do these kinds of things? Because they know they have a better and abiding possession. And that's why he says in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. Don't surrender your confidence in this world, but we have it in Christ, which has a great reward. And he says in 36, for what you need is endurance that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So we need to endure. As things get more difficult in America, we endure. Things get more challenging at work. Because of your Christian faith, you endure. They shouldn't go back to Judaism. He tells them, eternity is almost here. Endure it with Christ. Same with us. Endure it with Christ. Don't go on sinning deliberately. Pick up your cross and follow Christ. Die to your sins. Follow Christ. Don't forget the cost following a crucified and resurrected Galilean and galactic emperor, follow and endure with Christ. Don't forget about eternity. Hang on. Do God's will, 36. When you do, when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised, 37. And yet for a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. He's just a little while. And Christ will be here. Jesus is coming soon. 
This is not some disconnected Bible fairy tale. This is reality. And it changes your reality. Changes the realness of your life. It's meant to empower us and encourage us to endure, to not draw back, to not go into the background, but to rev up our faith, to chunk the camo and to be public, to be noticed that we are Christians. Share the gospel with radical measures. Even if, even if it means you'll be frozen out of that new business venture. Even if it means you, you won't have that friendship anymore. Even if it means things are gonna be awkward in your family. We will not be the people that draw back, verse 39. But we are not those who shrink back. We won't be like that. Why? Because we've been electroshocked by the resurrection of Christ. Because if Jesus is the real deal, then everything changes. We are those who have faith in him. And we will walk with him. We will endure with him. We will live deliberately by faith for his fame. Don't forget the cost. Don't forget about eternity. And let's live for him now. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.